going to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Or 55, rather. Isaiah 55. It is wonderful, um, let me get the mic here, it is wonderful uh, for my family and I to be uh, here this morning, uh, seeing so many familiar faces. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Dan, and I'm really a nobody, um, but I feel like a very loved nobody in this group. Uh, Obviously, um, my relationship with the church here has spanned over a decade as the group here um, first began supporting me uh, back uh, in Boston and uh, has been faithfully encouraging us our, and our family and our work uh, ever since then. Um, my current, uh, and our current lives in Sierra Leone have really, I think, permanently probably affected my teaching style. Um, so many folks that I teach in Sierra Leone are mostly illiterate and have very little knowledge of the Bible and of the scriptures. And so I just spend so much of my day trying to think about how to say things simply. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, had a, a rather lasting effect on my approach to teaching. So I hope today you guys are okay with a very simple sermon spoken in a very simple way, using very small words. Um, It was funny, our very first Creole lesson, Creole is the common tongue in Sierra Leone, it was before we even moved there, but this lady uh, who knew English wanted to give us uh, an idea of how to speak in Creole, which is the the common tongue there. And it's not too far from English, in fact some phrases sound very much like English. And she said to, uh, to us, me and Sonia, and to the Reiches, you know, when you're going into the market and you're looking to buy some fish, just walk up to someone and say to them, I want fish. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, we kind of chuckled at ourselves. And it's kind of been the butt of a joke for a while now that that wasn't very helpful because that sounded just like English. But actually, it was quite different. Because I think if you were to go to Walmart or some sort of supermarket here, you wouldn't ask it like that. You ask, where might I find the fish? Or, hello, how are you? Can you please direct me to the fish aisle? But in Sierra Leone, in Creole, I want fish. Uh, It kind of demonstrates the directness and the simplicity of how people talk over there. And so this sermon um, might reflect some very simple things and said in some simple ways here. So I want us to read a few verses from Isaiah 55, a very simple point I want to make. I'll probably take too long making it, but I don't know any other way. And, And we'll consider some very... Easy to comprehend points from this text, but I think the last part of it, as we consider the implications or the applications of this point, will be quite challenging to us, or at least it is to me. Isaiah 55, and we're going to read just two verses, verses 8 and 9, and we're going to talk about those for a little bit, and then we're going to come back to this chapter where I think more um, instruction and exhortation can be received. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts, says God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways 
nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Um, it's kind of intimidating sing, uh, teaching a lesson on these verses after singing a song that's very beautifully and wonderfully written that maybe makes the point better than I can. But this point um, that God is making here to us and to his people is he is reminding us of a truth that is essential when it comes to our relationship with God and as our uh, identity as his people. God is saying the way that you just instinctively think about things, your perspective, your reactions, the way that you just would naturally do things, it's so different than the way that I think about things, God says to us. And your reactions to stuff, and when you see problems, and you try to fix them, and when you see things that need to get done, and how you would go about it, your ways are far from my own. And in fact, not just a little far, as far as the heavens are from the earth. And this is kind of an uncomfortable realization, because if you're ever, like I, you know, speaking to friends, um, and they're talking about their, maybe, religion of choice, and you guys talk about your guys' religious backgrounds, and people explain why they're part of X religion, or why do they go to X church, oftentimes the reason for that is they feel that religion or that church kind of aligns with their natural worldview. They, this church, I'm kind of drawn to this church because they kind of agree with me on X, Y, Z. And then you're going to have to sit there and squirm a little bit if you've been thinking about this first and say, yeah, well, um, I'm a Christian. Even though me and God, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things naturally. And he thinks about things very differently than me. And the way that he wants to do things isn't the way that I naturally want to do them. And that's a little bit more uncomfortable. I think we would prefer to think of God as someone who is like us, who reasons like us who considers things the way that we consider them, who sees the same solutions to problems as the way we do, and whenever we see a scripture that kind of, yeah, that's how I feel, that then becomes our favorite scripture of choice. And so I want us to be reminded this morning that God is different than us. He thinks differently. His thoughts are higher than ours. A couple months ago, uh, well... Uh, in Sierra Leone, we never go out at dark because in Sierra Leone, the malaria parasite carrying mosquito, they only bite from dusk till dawn. And so by 6.45 every day, my entire family goes inside because we're a little scared of those <laughs> um, for good reason. Um, and so a couple months ago, Sonia was teaching a women's Bible study and got sick during that Bible study with malaria. Well, <laughs> Um, and so I had to take the girls out to pick her up and to bring her back home. And by the time we arrived back to our home, it was dark. And as we were walking back to the courtyard, my little girl looked up and said, Papa, Papa, what are those? And she was looking at the stars. Uh, my little girl had never seen stars before. At least she didn't remember that because we were always inside. But that made me think, how far are those stars? 
That's the distance that God said to say that his thoughts and his ways are from ours, naturally and instinctively. That is so far and so amazing. So there's so many ways that maybe I could go about this to kind of remind us of the vastness between God's ways and thoughts than our own. But I want to look at maybe, I have maybe four specific examples. I'm going to go through these really quickly here. Where these are Bible stories that if I were to stop mid-story and ask you, what would you do or what do you think God will do? Um, I think we'll be surprised with the answer to those questions. Um, so first, let's look, to, look at Ezekiel chapter 24. And I love to do this. Um, let's try to read some of these stories and kind of imagine that we're reading them for the first time. You know, this is not a familiar story to us. Let's just pretend that. I know I'm not speaking to a crowd, but that's predominantly the case here. But I want us to read Ezekiel chapter 24 in, we'll start in verse 18. So Ezekiel is God's prophet, and he is God's prophet to the exiles in Babylon after God had taken his people captive. And in verse number 18, so I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. Okay. So Ezekiel's wife dies, and it says in the next phrase that he did what God commanded him to do after his wife died. Well, what would we assume God would have told Ezekiel to do? What would you think maybe God would tell you to do in a situation like this? Take the month off. <laughs> you know, a, a recover, you know, you know, mourn, go. You know. Well, what he's refer, re- referencing in verses 15 through 17 is this. And when the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn and you shall not weep. Your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put on your shoes. Uh, put your shoes on your feet. And do not cover your mustache. And do not uh, eat the bread of men. God told Ezekiel, when your wife, your beloved partner dies, don't shed a tear. Go about business as usual. Put on your shoes, put on your trousers, and go out and act like nothing happened. God's ways are different than ours. Now, there's a, a reason. This is kind of an isolated case. It's not like this is a uh, command to all of us to follow that same uh, pattern here. But the least we could say from this story is, didn't see that coming. God's ways, God's thoughts are higher than our own. Let's look at his Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. God gives this prophet uh, instructions, uh, welcome instructions. Uh, For any, perhaps, single man. Verse, uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse number 2. When the Lord spoke, first spoke, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself 
a wife of, and it describes the type of woman that he is to find to marry. And maybe you just fill in the blank here. What type of woman we expect God to give uh, and to instruct his prophet to find? Well, a virtuous woman. A woman who reads her Bible all the day. You know, a woman, you know, maybe a really good cook. I don't know. Uh, but, I, 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 but the type of woman that God tells Hosea to find and to marry, according to verse number two, is a wife of harlotry. An immoral woman. It says, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. And so in this instance, God told his prophet to marry someone that we would never expect God to recommend marrying. Why? Because God's ways are different. And God sees things differently and has different approaches to things than we do. And in this isolated case, we see that's the instruction God gives Hosea. Well, you might say, well, yeah, those are Old Testament examples, Dan. Uh, but God kind of settles down the New Testament. Well, let's, let's, let's try me on that one. Let's look at Luke chapter 3. I always get a kick out of this whenever I read this chapter. Luke chapter 3, telling the story of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist is the preparer of the way for Jesus. And so he is at, in the wilderness by the Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance. And so crowds are coming to him in these verses. And in verse number 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Stop there. How would you, what, what do you think is going to be his, his words or his reception, his response when he sees these people who are responding with eagerness to the call for baptism? I just imagine he would be, oh, I'm so happy to see you and he'd give hugs. I mean, how would you feel if, you know, someone came forward or someone said, I, I need to be a Christian, I want to be baptized? We would just embrace them. We say, wow, this is a great decision you're making. This is the best day of your life. This will be the, the moment. And we would just be so encouraging and positive. But instead, the prophet of God, John the Baptist, what does he say to these people? You brood of vipers, verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later on says, if you guys don't bear fruit, the axe is laid at the root of your tree and you will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, I'm not sure how many of you received a message like that when you decided to become a Christian. But that's the prophet of the Lord, what he says in this situation. God is keeping us guessing in many of these stories. He's not doing or saying the thing that we would expect him to do or say. One reason, because his ways and his thoughts are higher than our own. So much higher. I got one more specific, one or two more specific examples here. Um, the book of John, John chapter 11. This one always cuts me when I read it. Uh, this is the story of Lazarus and Lazarus' the resurrection. And in verse number one, in John chapter 11, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the, uh, of the, uh, the village of Mary and, and her sister Martha. It was... The Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So he's giving the context here. These aren't strangers. These are the friends and the loved ones of Jesus. So verse 3. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
wouldn't you love to have a reputation with Jesus where someone wouldn't even need to call you by name? It's, oh, your loved one, he's sick. Oh, Lazarus. <laughs> That's the type of relationship that Jesus had with this man. And so, what are they requesting? Jesus, the same thing that you've done to countless strangers were in need of that towards your best friend, or something uh, essentially to that. And Jesus then says in verse 4, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then... Maybe think about what you're expecting to happen. We've just been told in the previous verse, he loved them so much. So, <laughs> he left his, you know, meal half eaten and, you know, you know, began jogging to Bethany to heal his friend. It doesn't say that. It says, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because God had a different plan, had a different thought, had a different way regarding how to respond to this need. And what an agonizing couple days that would have been for Jesus, knowing what his friend was going through. God's ways are higher than our own. And then one more that I'll look at here. There's so many more that we could. In Acts chapter 5, uh, I love the book of Acts. There's so much positive momentum. You read chapter 1, wait. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Thousands are being baptized. Verses 3 and 4, imprisonment, opposition, it doesn't matter, the church is growing. And then chapter 5 happens, and this one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they make a mistake. They want to be generous, or at least receive the benefits of open generosity. And so they sell a property of land, but they don't give the full portion to the church, but they claim what they did give was the full portion. And as me or you are reading the story in the context and the flow of this book, we're thinking, things are going really well. <laughs> um... Maybe if I was in this position, and thank God I wasn't, I would say, ah, well, things are going well. Let's not try to, you know, rock the boat too much. Slap on the wrist. Don't do that again. Move on. <laughs> it's not what God does. We know the story. Um, Ananias and his wife are confronted with this, and the Lord strikes them down, and they are killed for their lies and deceit. Again, God's ways are different than ours. God's ways are higher. And I think all these stories, and we could go through so many more uh, stories. I even think about uh, Jesus' selection of the apostles. Who would we have chosen? <laughs> we would not have seen. I, I think sometimes we would have chosen complete, complete opposite people than those individuals. We think about so many other examples, so many other individuals and people that had those kinds of shocking encounters with God. I think about Habakkuk. When, God, when Habakkuk is like, look at the wickedness of this generation. You need to do something about it. And God's like, yeah, I have a plan. I'm going to use the worst and immoral people you've ever known to judge them. Wait a minute. It's the last thing he expected. 
Even Jesus' stance on marriage and divorce, on taxes, on morality, they shocked people. Because they're not what people would have come up with. Not what people would have decided was the right thing to do. And all these things are kind of, I think, coming to a front here in the book of Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 50 here. I think kind of illustrates and states what, the, what point, I think, can be made from these reminders that God's ways are different than ours. Look at Isaiah, or sorry, um, Psalm 50. Psalm 50. In verses 16 and following, we learn about the condition of God's people at this time. Or the the condition of of the people around the psalmist. Verse 16, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? You, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief... You are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers, and you let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So what kind of people is the psalmist referring to? Immoral people, violent people, deceitful people, people that approve of immorality and wickedness, and I'm all into like pathology, meaning like if this is the outcome or these are where things are now, what led to this? Where did things go so horribly wrong in the generation of the people that the psalmist is referring to? What led them to this outcome or to this condition? Verse 21, I think, gives us at least a partial answer to that. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. What happens when we think that God is just like us? He thinks like us. He reasons like us. He rationalizes like us. We make a bunch of mistakes. Because as Isaiah told us, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But when we think that God, as he sees the situation, he wants us to do this. And that's just our assumption, or that's, just, that's just our rationale, that's our wisdom. When the reality is, perhaps God would shock us if we actually looked inside his word and found what he really wants. God is saying... You thought that I was like you. And that's where you went wrong. That's where you went so wrong. So let's go back to Isaiah. We'll tie all this up here in Isaiah 55. So maybe one incorrect conclusion that someone can come to If you're convinced that God's ways and God's thoughts are indeed vastly higher than your own, one incorrect conclusion is that, wow, 
I guess we can re- never really know what God wants. I guess God just has his own ideology and his own opinions and his own thoughts and his own ways. And that's just so different than me. And so I guess we're just going to have to be okay not knowing. There are times perhaps when there are things in life that that is true. But that is not the point of Isaiah 55. Read the two verses prior to 8 and 9. 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Look verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Does God, God seem far away? Or is he easy to access? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Verse 7 is a very challenging call and exhortation. The call of verse 7 is to forsake and abandon your ways and your thoughts. That's a hard thing to ask anyone. And the continuation of the call in verse 8 and 9 is, I want you to abandon the way that you think, what makes sense to you, what you would do in this environment, and adopt the thoughts and the ways of someone else. That's a hard ask for anyone. But my question is this. What could ever propel someone to agree to that exchange? What could ever convince someone that in any environment they are not going to do what seems natural and instinctive to them, but rather they're going to ask someone else first and do what they want and think how they think? What's the only way you could convince anyone to do that? If you were to prove that that person's thoughts and that person's ways are so much higher than your own. Not that they were unattainable, but rather that they are so much better than mine. And then that is when I would say, okay, um, to me this feels right. To me this seems like the right decision. But his ways are better than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. I'm going to go with his. And that is the calling of Isaiah 55. Let's read verses 1 through 3 here as we learn what kind of person God is inviting to this dramatic exchange of ways and thoughts. Verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come. And you who have no money... Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's asking and he's calling hungry people, thirsty people, poor people. Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? He's calling hungry and poor and thirsty people. He's also calling people who are tired of running into dead ends. Tired of exchanging valuable things for things that they think are the right way and doing the right thing, but ultimately never satisfy. But verse 3, the second half of verse, uh, verse 2 and 3, 
is where I want to key in on here as the scripture emphasizes this point. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. What is being emphasized? What type of person is God calling to have this exchange of ways and thoughts? The person who is eager to listen and to learn. God is looking for students. But people who don't see a vast difference between their own opinions and thoughts and ways and God's make very, very, very poor students. Because after all, they already know. After all, I already have an idea of what's the best thing. But if you're able to come to a realization and the conviction that God's ways are higher, you don't have any problem at all opening your ears to God. Because you know he knows best. And you'll be looking for that. So in other words, what are the distinguishing traits of someone who has a firm awareness and a firm conviction regarding the distance between my ways and my thoughts and God's? Number one, they will be reluctant to think highly of their own opinions and convictions on matters. They will be reluctant to think highly about their own opinions and convictions on matters. And this awareness demands humility. If I understand that God's ways are higher than my own, then when someone comes in and challenges my own thoughts, okay, sure. I know that I might be mistaken. I know that. After living abroad for several years, I now have at least some reference point for some unique cultural features and traits that we Americans have that maybe I didn't realize were as much of a thing until I lived overseas. Uh, And this is one of those things. I think it is common for us that when we feel like we've stated an opinion or we have a stance on a subject, it is very hard for us to let go of that. We want to save face. I mean, if you watch even at the top some of our political leaders in some of these debates, these presidential debates... You know, they will refuse to even admit that they've changed their mind on things or that they, they were somehow were, 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 had a different stance or they, because they want to hold on to their convictions because they're not convinced that God's ways or anyone else's ways is that much higher than their own. We need to realize that this awareness that God's ways are higher than ours, it demands humility regarding our own attitude towards our own opinions. Number two... Having this awareness, having this conviction that God's ways are higher than our own, this will result in men and women who are quick and diligent to search the scriptures to aid their understanding of what God wants and what God wants from us. Um, Someone who is convicted that God's ways are higher than their own, they will be doing anything possible to find out what God wants. They'll be diligently searching the scriptures To see what God wants in any matter because after all, I can't trust my own opinions. I can't trust my own perceptions of things. I want to be led by God's hands because I have a long history of what happens when I just do my own thing. I think about the kind of appraisal that Jesus had of his apostles after his earthly ministry. 
Remember that conversation that Jesus had? He says, I have so many things to tell you, but you're not ready. After three years, over three years of day-to-day contact with Jesus, Jesus' appraisal of these men is, wow, God's ways and thoughts are so much more vast and higher than your own than three years of daily discipline and teaching was enough to get you to have the proper awareness of what God wants and how God thinks and to adopt that as your own. And so what did God, Jesus say to them? So I'm going to send you a helper that will guide you into all truth. So anyone who is diligent to wanting to know what is the ways and thoughts of God, not only will we be looking heavily into Jesus' teaching, Jesus' examples, but every page of the scriptures will be saying, does this tell me a little bit about what God wants in this situation? Is this how God wants me to apply this principle? Is this how? And we will be looking for everything because we know that's the purpose of the Spirit. As he was guiding the apostles to do and to perform the ways of God. So we will be quick and diligent to search the scriptures. And any time, perhaps, where anyone can help me see that more clearly, I think God thinks about this differently. I think God wants you to apply this principle differently. I will be so eager and so happy to say, yeah, because I know my own perspective sometimes is lacking. And I need some help. And if you can show me somewhere, you'd be a welcome friend to me. And the final trait, distinguishing trait of someone who has this conviction of God's ways being vastly higher than his own, is that they will be willing and eager to exchange their own ideas and their own wisdom and way of doing things when they find out that God has a different way and a higher way. Um, We will be eager to give up our own thoughts in exchange for God's. And there will be no fight, no struggle, no resistance, only submission, because we know that God's ways are higher than my own. And even if it doesn't make sense fully to me, it makes sense to God. Uh, and again, this is something that my experience in Sierra Leone has helped me with. And uh, I've been benefited so much by the brethren there teaching me so much about what it means to submit to the will of God. And I think I've spent a lot of my life Um, being slower to change my mind on issues and being reluctant and being a struggler when it comes to submission to God in in certain areas of my own life. I think part of that comes because I I lived in a culture. I grew up in a culture that was like that. I remember teaching uh, a sermon in Bo, the church that my wife and I are working with in Sierra Leone. And this is a relatively young group of Christians, maybe 15, 20 members, and uh, they had mostly been taught the gospel to, from evangelists that have been traveling overseas to visit them. And there are not very many Creole hymns and worship songs uh, in their native language. And so they had, for years, been using English hymnals to sing because that's the only thing that they had. And Creole and English are not terribly different languages. But it's different enough, especially with some of the older verbiage and vocabulary in some of these songs, where I'm confident, and I knew for certain, that about half the congregation, you know, got an idea of what was being said. And very few of the women, who it's less common to fulfill, you know, their their education, was getting anything out of it. And so that was limiting both the ways in which we were able to encourage each other and then receive encouragement. 
And so I taught a sermon uh, from 1 Corinthians 14 about how it's God's intention for in the assembly for all things to be done for edification. And edification cannot be present if understanding is not present. And I made an application to when Americans come and they teach for us, should they be teaching in English or should they be translated into Creole? So that all can understand. I made an application to the prayers that we pray. Making sure that all prayers that we pray are spoken in a language that all understand. And then I said, and what about the songs that we sing? At that point, we only had three or four Creole hymns. um, The common cultural hymns there. And after the sermon, I sat down. And there was a bit of a pause. And one of the leading men of the group, from his chair, um repented on behalf of the church for disregarding God's command for edification and understanding to abound in their assemblies. And they said from that day forward, we will never sing an English song in our assembly until all can understand English. And so that's then resulted in us writing and composing Creo hymns. We now have 27 at the moment. But I think about what attitude was reflected by the brethren there. In a single sermon that was presented very simply, I didn't have PowerPoint or anything like that, but a very simple sermon was presented. They were humble to recognize that God's ways was greater than their own, God's thoughts higher than their thoughts, and were willing to submit. And for the first month or two, we just sang the same three or four Creole hymns uh, repeatedly, three or four times per our service, again and again and again, until we're slowly able to add to what, what, what the different songs we're able to sing. What a blessing it is to have examples like those men and women that when they're confronted with truth and confronted with something that's different than what they were doing or different to what they believed previously, we're willing to say, yeah, that's the way we did it. That's the way I thought before. That's my own way and our own solution to the problem that we had earlier. But God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are thoughts. And obviously the group here and every individual here has me a different area where we can struggle with that. And so I ask all of us to be thoughtful regarding our own selves as we seek to abandon our own ways, our own line of thinking, and truly adopt the thinking and the ways of our Lord. Paul's journey to doing that was not smooth. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road, the Lord said to Paul, How long will you kick against the goats? I'm prodding you in a direction. But for so long, Paul viewed and thought of his own ways as being higher than God's in some form or fashion and was resisting the direction of God. If you can relate to that story, then the scripture, the Lord, we all would implore you to submit to the Lord. And whatever way that, whatever application that is for you, if that means that you need to, as Paul needed to, to be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, then you can make that uh, known uh, now. But also, if there's anything else in your life that you've been resisting against God, you've been holding on to your own opinions, your own thoughts, your own ways, and you're looking for the support or the encouragement or the guidance of the shepherds and the Christians here, if there's any way that we can support